My, my goal today is to help us all prepare our hearts for Holy Week. Uh, David Huey will be preaching next week. He's got people coming from out of town and with that kind of pressure on him. You know he'll be at his best, so we've got, we can look forward to that. And the week after that is Palm Sunday. It's early. It comes early this year. Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, swift on its heels. So, you know, so I th- thought today I wanted to prepare all of our, our hearts for that. Uh, if you help pay me in my pastoring, you'll, you may be happy to know that my sermon today arose out of personal devotional time in the scriptures. And in other words, I wasn't looking for a sermon, but one presented itself to me. I, it, it came and got me. Uh, I was in the 50th Psalm. The uh, sixth verse of which begins, the heavens declare, as the bulletin says, the heavens declare. If I were to ask you to fill in the blank, I think I know what most Christians would say. If I used to say, the heav- you know, the Bible says the heavens declare, and then you fill in the rest, I, I think you, you would say the glory of God, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. And you'd be right. You'd be right. But that's Psalm 19, not Psalm 50. Here, here's what 19 so Here's what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And it's easy for us to see that. It's easy for us to to get that, to, to see how the Lord's glory is manifested in the heavens. I mean, I mean, we ourselves, probably almost all of us, maybe all of us, have have felt that same thing. You go outside and look on a maybe a clear, crisp when the air is clear and crisp. Maybe winter time, and you know you're away from city lights, and you just see the the sky awash with stars, and we think, "Wow, how great is God who made all of this!" And so it's it's easy for us to. To see that, and he he sustains it by his will, by his sovereign will. How awesome is God? How great is God? And and in this way, our our scientific age has has really added to the glory of God, hasn't it? Because we know what's what's out there, you know, is is way beyond what we can see with our eyes on a, you know, on a on a crisp and clear night. I mean, we we've seen, but you know, beyond the, what even the telescopes can see, that we you know that you can look at yourself. The heavens declare the glory of God. Of course they do, and and it's it's just it's obvious to us. The creation shouts that the Creator is glorious, but that's not what Asaph, the author of Psalm 50, wrote. That's not what he wrote. That's not how he completed. His sentence that begins, the heavens declare. Here's how, here's how the 50th Psalm begins. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth 
from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. And around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare, there it is, his righteousness. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Selah, it says. Selah is like a musical notation that probably means a rest or a pause here. It, it probably doesn't mean, like I've read in the Babylon Bee, extended guitar solo here. It means a pause or a rest. And, we, and, and really, we, we ourselves, we kind of need a rest right there. Uh, because we need time to think about what has just been said. It, it has to sink in a little bit. The heavens declare the righteousness of God. And specifically in the context, now in, the, in what you can see it in what I read, but also in what follows if you read what, his righteousness in judging his people and then by extension judging the whole earth. It's easy for us to see how the heavens declare the glory of God. It's just like it's obvious to us. The heavens declare the glory of God. It is not easy to see how the heavens declare the righteousness of God. This psalm says so, and there are others that say so as well. I mean, we look at the grandeur of the created universe and we say, wow, God is great, God is intelligent, God is powerful, God is glorious. But we don't look at it and say, look at it, that same night sky that and just wash with stars and say, wow, God is righteous. He is righteous and just in all his judgments. We, that just doesn't come to us. Why was it obvious to Asaph, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and not to us? And Asaph even gives an explanation for it that, that might explain it for him, but, it, but I'll bet it will leave you short. The heavens declare the righteousness of God for, F-O-R, in other words, an explanatory reason. He's going to give a reason. This is how I know. The heavens declare the righteousness of God for God himself is judge. We immediately get how the heavens declare the glory of God, but it is not immediately obvious to us how the heavens declare the righteousness of God as the judge of all mankind. And I, and I hope to explain that today to myself included. Uh, but before I take a run at that, I, I want to suggest that it should give us pause that that rings so strange and unnatural to our ears. The heavens declare God's righteousness in judging his people and by extension all mankind. 
it's like some sort of generational cultural blind spot shrouded to us somehow but much more obvious to people who live before us like Asaph and probably to people who come after us if the Lord tarries or even if he doesn't in, in, in adult Sunday school several weeks ago we watched a video about Martin Luther's anti-semitism um, and it was fairly shocking to me I, I, I knew I knew some of the things but it was uh, uh, you know I knew he was anti-semitic just like the just like the Catholics he was breaking away from but I didn't know the half of it he, he wrote a treatise called on the Jews and their lives and he and he wrote this he said what shall we Christians do with this rejected condemned people the Jews and he offered a seven-point plan. Every, every point was shocking. <laughs> I'm just, just to make my point, I'm just going to tell you the first point of his seven. First, a quote from Luther, to set fire to their synagogues or schools. First point of seven. This is continuing. This is to be done in honor of our Lord and of Christendom, so that God might see that we are Christians. Whew. Wow. Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, can you imagine? They, uh, they will know we are Christians by the flames, by the flames. They will know we are Christians by the Jews whom we blame. Can you imagine? We're going to burn their schools and synagogues to show we are Christians. I mean, what part of God telling Abraham, I will make you a great nation, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, didn't Luther get? He must, and I know he read Romans 9 because he got saved while he was teaching Romans. Romans 9, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. How could he not see the difference between that and let's burn down their synagogues and schools to show what good Christians we are? How, how could he read the Apostle Paul saying, lest you, Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. How could he read that 
and then believed that there was no longer a place for Israel in God's plan, that he had judged them forever for killing his Christ, and then take the further step by saying that, or teaching that the church should be a willing and enthusiastic agents of God's judgment on the Jews. How could he not see the disconnect? How did he not get all the scriptures I just read? Romans 9, Romans 11. How could he not get it? Well, he couldn't because a part of the spirit of the age, his own age, not ours, had captured him. His anti-Semitism was entirely uncontroversial in his own day, in his own circles. Now, the Catholics, of course, hated him, but not, not because of that. On as far as the Jews, they were on the same page. They agreed with that. Let me give you another example of generational, kind of a cultural, moral blind spot. I, I, years ago, I was reading about the Reformation, post-Reformation era, and I read of a sentence. This just stuck in my memory. I didn't even look it up to, you know, to kind of refresh myself. I'm just going from memory. But uh, I read of a sentence to be carried out on a certain uh, condemned heretic. And, and this was Protestant-on-Protestant Protestant persecution. I don't remember what his heresies were, probably things you and I believe. <laughs> but he was to be, his sentence, he was to be dragged behind a wagon, chained to the back of a wagon, and dragged into the public square where executioners would cut out his tongue that he might not be able to spout those heresies anymore. And then his executioners were to take hot tongs and twist and pull seven pieces of flesh from him somewhere. And then, and this is what it said, some language like this, out of respect for the sensitivities of the women who would be present, to be dragged out of town and continue to have pieces of flesh torn out of him till he was, till he was dead. And I read that and I thought, out of respect for the sensitivities of the females who would be, what are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> These are some rough women, right? <laughs> and rough, rough people altogether. They could take seeing the first part, but it, you know, they could take the, the tongue and the seven pieces of flesh, but then if they were to continue, you know, until he was dead, they'd get the vapors. Oh, I can't take that. <laughs> but the first part was okay. How could they not see just the abject cruelty of this whole thing? Well, it was a cruel age. That was in the air. That was the spirit of the age. That's what everybody, it seemed reasonable to everybody. Here's a, another example. Who, who do you suppose said this? Slavery, this is American, American history now. Slavery was established by decree of Almighty God. It's sanctioned in the Bible, both Old Testaments 
in both testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages and been founded among the people of the highest civilization and in nations in the highest proficiency in the arts. That's Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States of America, Episcopalian in good standing. And well, you might say, well, there's no accounting for Confederates and Episcopalians. Well, how about this one? Same general time period, a little before. The right of holding slaves is clearly established in, Holy, in the Holy Scriptures by both precept and example. Well, that's a guy, Richard Furman, you would have never heard of him, I'm sure, but, but he's president of the Southern of the uh, South Carolina Baptist Convention, roughly same time period. Founded Bible tract societies, Bible societies. How, how, did they, how did they get to that kind of moral reasoning? It's just the spirit of the age. Well, all right. Tear down the statues, rename the buildings. It's very popular to hold people from past generations accountable to current moral sensibilities. But the obvious question is never asked. Where is the spirit of our age off base? What is it about us? That will have people 100 years from now, maybe, or 200 or 300, saying, what were they thinking? And, of course, the Scriptures the scriptures are only hope of uh, seeing right and wrong, not just from a generational perspective or a cultural perspective or a contemporary perspective, but an eternal perspective. It's the only hope we have. I mean, it was Scripture, for example, that led Christians to lead the fight against slavery. Absolutely. And you're, you're not an anti-Semite, if you're not, but if you're not one because your knowledge of the Scriptures and its teachings guards you from it, won't let you go there. So when we find something in Scripture that we don't, we read it, but we don't get it, I don't get it. Uh, we should take note and remember that the scripture has this correcting, reproving, it, instructing ministry. And let it have it. So, so where are the blind spots of our age? Well, our, I'm not, I'm not going to go where I think they are or everywhere. But our difficulty in understanding a verse like Psalm 56, chapter 50, verse 6, is a clue to one of them. The heavens declare the righteousness of God, and in the context is righteousness in judging his people and all mankind. It's, it seems so strange to us. Could you look, would you look at the stars of the sky and look at the grandeur of creation and would you really look at that and say, wow, God is righteous in judging us? Not so much. We, we kind of skip over it in our minds. It isn't obvious why that should be so. And, and it isn't 
Now, it, it isn't just this admittedly maybe kind of obscure reference, you know, tucked away in a psalm, one line in a psalm. It's not just that. We read, for example, we read in the New Testament, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And our gut reaction is that say, why should fear and trembling have anything to do with it? Fear and trembling? In fact, we kind of define down when we, the fear of the Lord, when we explain fear of the Lord, we kind of tend to, you know, carve it down to something like respect or some reverence. And yet, if any of us were to immediately and unexpectedly find ourselves in the presence of our maker, <laughs> we might decide that, I suspect we'd think that fear was the right word all along. <laughs> not dread, not thinking that he's, you know, not loving and mean or something, but still, fear. Uh, we, we tend to... Another example, and it's not just Psalm 50, verse 6. We tend to kind of apologize for God's judgment, for his sense of right and wrong now and the ultimate judgment to come. You know, at our Greenfield Bible study, we just finished working through Acts. A few weeks ago, we just finished working through Acts. What Dr. Luke wrote about the Apostle Paul's witness to Governor Felix, it strikes us as odd in a way. Here's, here's, here's what Acts 24 says, a couple of verses, 24 and 25. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness, so he's witnessing. He's witnessing to the, to the governor and his wife. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon to you. Well, I witness to my faith in Christ you know, a decent amount, you know. And over the course of my life, you know, over the course of my Christian life, uh, I've witnessed to my faith in Christ to really just hundreds and hundreds of people. In my witness, righteousness and self-control don't come up that much. <laughs> Coming judgment a little. At least those aren't among my main points. So I, I, think, I think I must do it different than Paul did. <laughs> Somehow. I, I wish there was a record of exactly what Paul said to Felix when they're talking about, I think I could fill in the blanks, I'm talking about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. But whatever it was Paul said, Felix found it downright unnerving, <laughs> alarming. He said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Not now, at least. I'll call you later. And I suspect that compared to this, there's a, there's a lot more carrot than stick in our witness, in modern evangelical witnessing. Probably much more about the promise of an intimate relationship with a perfect person and much less about escaping the righteous judgment of God on our sins. 
we're going through Roman in Greenfield at the Greenfield Bible study. We're now we've jumped into Romans. We went from Acts to Romans. And even in those early chapters, you know, we come across things that that's about God's righteous judgment that just sound strange to our modern ears. They just don't they don't resonate with us like they like it seems like it must have with the first gener you know the people who first read the letter. Chapter chapter one of Romans ends this way, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. That's a hard sell these days, isn't it? Uh, that God's righteous decree is that those who practice such things deserve to die. Well, okay, murderers perhaps, but gossips? <laughs> gossips? And how did disobedience to parents get in that list? And it says, though they, this is the people, this is the lost, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we must have a different sort of pagan today. <laughs> Our unbelievers must come from a different, cut from a different bolt of cloth than that one. They don't know that at all. That those who practice such things deserve to die. Even the Christians have a hard time wrapping their mind around that. That God is absolutely righteous in judging sinners. It, it sure doesn't sound like the warm, fuzzy God who comes to us hat in hand seeking a relationship with us if we'll grant him the favor of our hand and friendship. On our, on our trips to Boston, uh, when, when our, our daughter and her family lived there, I was I was much impressed with with the pulpits of some of the historic churches, you know, like the old North Church, where the wonderful "I land to if by sea," the lanterns and all. Those churches are still there. Some of them, I think, are functioning churches, but but the, oh my, those pulpits! I remember one. I think it's the North Church. High, it, it, it wouldn't fit in this room. <laughs> high and lifted up that pulpit you had to take a spiral staircase to get up there and you just imagine he's looking you know that it's way up there way up there and and you know no microphone so you think it's got to be a big booming voice this guy has to have a voice he's not you know in a pretty big pretty big church you look at that and you think wow that pulpit is a sermon all by itself it's a sermon without a sermon <laughs> Now we have here, we have an old-fashioned, it's an old, it's solid, it's big, it's authoritative looking. 
If, you, if you've ever had to move it, you know how solid it is. <laughs> but if we were really up to date, it'd be a portable plexiglass thing that one person could just take and take it off. And I'd be sitting on a stool and jeans and a t-shirt. Now, before, before I go further, I want to say that that, that, uh, that teaches true and important things too. Certainly that, you know, it, it, it stresses God's accessibility, right? You know, that we can approach him. And, and certainly it shows that the, the guy doing the teaching is not some sort of professional with secret knowledge that, in, that no one else can get at. You know, that he's not different from anybody else. Certainly it shows that he comes to God the same way you, you do. That he's not, he's not some special class. So that teaches some good and, and right things too. But... There's a, we certainly have to guard against a, a decline in, uh, in the reverence due God of bringing him yeah, literally down, down to our level, even though he has condescended to our level. It's kind of like, it's kind of like when you think of that, I think of that pulpit 200 years ago, way up there. And then this one is kind of old-fashioned and outdated. And then to the, you know, to, to what it is now, the stool, the bar stool. Um, it's, it's kind of like, yeah, familiarity is good, but it's kind of like parents who become their kids' friends and their peers, and they're only to find that their parental authority is gone. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, the, somehow the baby went out with the bathwater, you know. It's... it's and so the, the, that history of pulpit design <laughs> suggests to me that the emphasis, as the emphasis on God's accessibility, his nearness has increased, awareness of his utter transcendence and awe-inspiring holiness has declined. And the mo- well, the most unnerving thing... To me, in those early chapters of Romans, that it says that God's wrath upon sinners is presently manifested in that he gives people over to their own desires and divorced from their moral, divorced from God, the moral compass goes uh, haywire. And in some cases, evil becomes good and good becomes evil. It goes so bad. And the judgment in Romans is that as people pile up their sins against God storing up his wrath as the ultimate righteous judgment of God looms at a date certain but unknown to us. The spirit of our age obscures, shrouds, veils the righteousness of God in judgment, in judging his people in the whole world, so much so that when we read of it, we don't kind of don't get it. <laughs> like Luther didn't get what the scripture really says about the Jewish people. Like the Confederates didn't get what the Bible says really teaches about the man being made in the image of God. So let's try to answer answer the original question. I'm almost done. 
Let's try to answer the original question. How is it that Asaph saw the heavens proclaiming God's righteousness? Just as obviously as we look at the heavens, they declare his glory. Yes, absolutely. How is it that Asaph saw that? What did he see that we have so much trouble seeing? And I have to tell you, the answer doesn't come very easy for me. Uh, I'm one of us after all. And the spirit of our age is the current which carries us all along, hopelessly if not for the word of God and the spirit of God, that can pull us back from sharing the world's biases if we'll yield to them. But here's what I think. I think Asaph considered the heavens and thought, wow, the one who made all this, the one who made all this and made it run like it does and and sustains it moment by moment by his wisdom, he does things right. His will is supreme in anything. What he says goes. He's not a man tossed about by the moral fads of his own day. He alone is eternal. He alone is immune to moral fashions. He he doesn't have any blind spots. He doesn't have any confusion. He doesn't evolve morally. He doesn't go with the flow. He doesn't keep in step with moral trends. He's not a slave to moral fashions. He's eternal. The one who made all of this has to be. When he judges, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about it. His verdicts are not opinions at all. They're truth in every way. His gavel trumps all other gavels and opinions and arguments of men. His judgment trumps every human judgment. There's no appeal from his court. His judgments are true. And who, who can say anything in response when he speaks? The one who made all of this. How would you, when he speaks in judgment over us, what can we say? You know, the courtroom is meant, you know, the courtroom is meant to impress, right? The courtroom is meant to impress. The judge isn't that high, but he's this high. <laughs> the wood, you know, everything that's done, you stand up when the judge comes in, you know, and all of that. It's meant to impress. All right, so the Asaph looks at the sky. The universe is the Lord's courtroom. <laughs> and we are very small in it. And we're getting, and you know, we live in a scientific age. We're getting smaller every day, aren't we? <laughs> we're getting smaller all the time. He said, God says, let there be light, and there is He says, you are guilty, and you are. Or he says, you are righteous, or you are forgiven, 
you are. We need, we need a vision of God in his holy temple like the one Isaiah got. And the train of his robe filled the temple. High and lifted up. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What was Isaiah? You remember Isaiah's response? Woe is me. (laughs) I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. So I'm sunk to be in the presence of this holy God. He sends an angel. He touches a coal to his lips and makes what was unclean clean. And we, we need grace. We really do need God's grace to be able to look into the night sky and consider the vastness and complexity and beauty of the universe and all it contains and say like say not only, you know, like the Psalm 19, wow, God is glorious, but wow, God is righteous in all his judgments. And how will that, how will that prepare you for Holy Week? Well, by renewing the wonder, the amazement, or maybe showing us for the first time that it is that same utterly righteous and holy God whom we can now approach boldly because of what he did for us through Jesus Christ. And it's this same God whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin without judging it in righteousness who poured out his righteous wrath on his own sinless son instead, that we might be saved. The sentence rightly do us. Like Psalm 50 says, we have made a covenant with him through sacrifice. And now, we know in a way that Asaph didn't, that that sacrifice is the blood of his own son, of God's own son shed for us, that that's what makes us his covenant people. It's his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. The fact that he speaks to us like at a pulpit in Boston from way up there. That's what makes grace amazing. Towards sinners like us. Do do you know... Do you know, I know we know the song and everything, but do you know in your heart of hearts that God's grace toward you is truly amazing? Does it appear to you in your mind's eye that it is a miracle of God's grace that God should pour out his righteous wrath on his own beloved son, sinless son, to spare you. Because that is the gospel. That's the gospel. And it is to be believed. 
save yourself from this crooked and perverse generation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. Father, uh, give us a greater insight into the way things really are, into the way you really are. Not according to the fashions and biases of our own generation, not even according to what is popular and assumed among Christian people. Let us see you as you are. And may it bring us to our knees. Make grace your unmerited favor upon the undeserving through Christ. Make it amazing again. And let it dwell richly in our hearts as we live through the season that, that directs our attention to the resolve of Jesus on Palm Sunday, to the immensity of the price paid on Good Friday, and to the triumph and celebration of Resurrection Sunday. Increase faith in every believing heart here today and let its beginning spring up in any who remain outside of Christ now, that they might be saved, and that you would be glorified, and that our joy would be made full. We pray in the, in the precious, powerful, glorious name of Jesus. Amen.